On this episode of Movie Geeks United, we speak with legendary screenwriter David Seltzer. Mr. Seltzer is most known for pinning the 1976 horror classic The Omen, but he is certainly more than just that, as his diverse resume will attest. Three of the films that he has pinned over the years are celebrating anniversaries. These, of course, include The Omen, which is turning 45, and we will discuss two other films on his resume that are also celebrating anniversaries, the Oscar-winning Hellstrom Chronicle from 1971 and Lucas from 1986 as well. Uh, the Hellstrom Chronicle obviously turning 50 and Lucas turning 35. So thanks so much for coming on to talk a bit, uh, not only about The Omen, but The Hellstrom Chronicle and Lucas as well. So I just, uh, you know, I guess we'll start chronologically. We'll, we'll go back to The Hellstrom Chronicle because that was one of your first. I know you did, I think, a few, um, it seems like television shows maybe uh mm-hmm. before that but that was probably one of your most noteworthy credits at that point a uh, huge fan of the hellstrom chronicle um had seen it on knew about it for years and it used to turn up on cable in the early 90s i was blown away by it the first time i ever saw it uh luckily it was in print for a couple of years on blu-ray and i think it may be out of print now but uh it's a notable film because uh, the Sorrow and the Pity was up for Best Documentary that year, and the Hellstrom Chronicle beat out the Sorrow and the Pity famously. And there are some people who still have a, a sore spot about that. I think they're both great films, I'll be honest. I love them both equally. Uh, it's like choosing between your children. And uh, I just wanted to uh, you know, get a little info about how you got the assignment for the Hellstrom Chronicle and uh, how, how that happened. You're starting at the right place. I was... Um stifled in my early career, um, had to make a living, had no idea I would wind up being a screenwriter, and was um, working in New York on game shows and heard about this documentary company, Walper Productions, that was doing a special um, a series on animals called The Wonderful World of Animals. So... Um, I quickly interviewed and bullshitted my way through a resume, which was not true, saying I was a writer for CBS in New York, that I was an assistant curator in the reptile house of Lincoln Park Zoo. And um, and I got a really wonderful, what I felt was a permanent spot as a documentary filmmaker doing animals. I worked for National Geographic, traveling all over Africa. I worked for Jacques Cousteau. And... Um, Somebody, a guy named Wallen Green, came back with footage inside a termite mound in Africa. I was a, Lucas was a, was an insect geek. We'll get to him in a minute, but that was very autobiographical. My childhood was spent not in pursuit of, um, popularity, girls, football games. I was collecting bugs. So at any rate, this was very exciting to me. And, um, he did it on film, 35 millimeter film, and I thought because it was my own theory that um, the insects would inherit the earth, that they were so adaptable to so many poisons that it was, you know, this was an ecological statement. And um, I talked to Walper about it. We envisioned a score of, you know, a, a great orchestral score, which we had. Ants coming over the hill. We didn't know what, quite what the hell we were doing. Um, but we sent cameramen back to, to get a lot of insect footage. My college roommate, Larry Pressman, 
played an invented scientist named Dr. Hellstrom, who would postulate on camera about with, you know, with all the geek fashion that an entomologist, you know, an entomologist has um, about the wonder of, and of insects, how they are built, how they breathe, how they reproduce, what, you know, the genius of the mechanism of an insect. And um, while doing this, I was writing dialogue for the first time in my life. The scientist would appear on screen and say words, and that was miraculous to me. I was actually not just writing voiceover narration, and the seals will propagate on the full moon on the beach. You know, <clears throat> this guy was talking. I thought, geez, I think people get rich doing this. I'm going to try being a screenwriter. Um, the Hellstrom Chronicle went on to win. Um, it wasn't the Palme d'Or, but it was the documentary, documentary equivalent in, uh, in France, and it won the Academy Award. And uh, I started telling people I was now a screenwriter because I had written some dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody believed me, but among my crowd of documentary filmmakers at that time, um, they were wanting to branch out into features. And I have to, I have to stop before we get we get further to the omen in saying that it was the Hellstrom Chronicle and my claiming to everybody I was a screenwriter that put me in the right place at the right time because they had gotten the screenwrites from Roald Dahl to do Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And um, they were off in Munich and Roald Dahl, a famous rageaholic, I think probably bipolar, gave them 14 pages and when they weren't satisfied with that, which he said was a screenplay because it indicated where in the book he, they would go to get the Anyway, you know, Malper called me and he said, Seltzer, call me the kid. Hey, kid, that's how long ago this one. <laughs> can you really write a screenplay? I said, well, of course I can write a screenplay. And he said, we got a problem. Roald Dahl walked off the set. Um, we can't admit that we lost Roald Dahl because he was our ticket to credibility. You know, we have no street cred without him. I want you to come out. I want you to come to Munich. Not first class, coach. We're going to put you up in a hotel. Not first class. Just a room. And we need you to write this script. So I wrote Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Additionally to this great deal that I would get basically nothing but car fares, I wouldn't get screen credit and I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. <laughs> well, everybody found out. And um, so it's now on my resume. I would have never put it there. But I did write it. It did become famous. And so now I actually was a screenwriter. So that's so the Hellstrom Chronicle was nothing but um, I still may. I, I still invent characters um, on uh, uh, online on Facebook when I have something too erudite or pompous for me to quote myself. His name is R.K. Massey. Anybody who's on Facebook with me, when I quote him, it's me. So at any rate, um, so Hellstrom was the first one of those. That led to Willy Wonka, and Willy Wonka led to a screen career. Interesting. 
Very interesting. This film is not celebrating its anniversary this year, but I am a, a fan of The Other Side of the Mountain, as I think I mentioned in a conversation, uh, and I know that you wound up. Uh, that just actually, ironically, uh, came out on Blu-ray just this month uh, for the first time ever. Yes, uh, blue, uh, the blue, uh, it's a double feature of it and the sequel, which I know uh, that Daniel Day Stewart pinned the second one, but uh, you did such a wonderful job with that. I think uh, it's it was a you know very emotional for me as a as a child, and I know a lot of people uh, seeing it at a certain time in their lives were quite moved by it as well. So so we'll talk about that, and uh, if you don't mind. No, no, it's a pleasure talking to you, by the way, because you really do know your stuff. Oh, thanks. And not your enthusiasm, <laughs> but your amount of knowledge. Makes uh, makes me feel like like all this writing was worthwhile. It absolutely it, was. Trust me. <laughs> with you. Um, I, I want to touch on the other side of the mountain because that was the next that that the deal the deal on Willy Wonka was I don't get credit but they would make my first screenplay which they did. It was called One Is a Lonely Number. It was totally forgettable. But then came um, I was accompanying a friend recently divorced was too too distraught to go to a teacher's conference by himself. I literally went and held his hand. It was at Beverly Hills uh, Grammar School. The teacher was Jill Kinmont in a wheelchair. I didn't even know anything about her until I was so impressed with her. Paralyzed from the neck down, she was teaching remedial reading at a, at a Beverly Hills Grammar School. And um, I got to talking to her, and she told me it was a skiing accident. And that um, I was very curious about her, and she didn't really want to talk much about it. And then I found out the whole story of who she was. And I went back to her with a proposal of writing a story of her life for the screen, or at least this portion of her life. And she said that she she really was not interested in, in being celebrated for this terrible accident and what's happened to her since. She said... But she and her mother, they lived in Bishop, her mother did. You know, she said, would that possibly be financed in a way that would help us out? And I said, oh, yeah, I think it would. So at any rate, um, we talked a lot, and she was very defended. She seemed to have no emotional recall of any of it. She was uh, courageous to the point where the story was boring. And I, and I said, you know, I'm not going to invent your life. I'm not going to invent your dialogue, and I'm not getting enough from you, so I want you to think about it, and I'll just retreat for a while, and you let me know. She couldn't write. I got a letter from her mother, which she dictated, and it was a bit, it, it was not just a letter. It was a yellow pad full of notes, and the first line was, I awaken every morning having forgotten I can't move. Mm, that's good. Okay. I said, let's go to work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's powerful. <laughs> so, um, and then I did some television things. I was known for doing soft things that made people cry. Very interested in writing about families, about crisis in families. And um, then I got a call from yet another Walper person who wanted to get into features. And he said, did you see The Exorcist? Um and I said, yeah, of course. And he said, I want one of those. And I was known for and ridiculed for being a very sentimental writer. Um, the Los Angeles Times um, had an article, and my picture was in it called The Sultan of Saab. 
and uh, and there are people who still ridicule my my oeuvre. Um, but at any rate, so having done documentaries where you learn something every day of your life, you're feeding in information um, and knowing more than anybody in the world about some particular kind of topic. I really decided that when I went into features, I would, whenever possible, choose a subject I could learn from. Um, being from a um, uh, mixed Orthodox and conservative, very fundamental Jewish old country background, um, Poland and Russia, um, I was steeped in religion, but none of it had anything to do with the devil. There is no, there is no devil. That's one thing <laughs> that Jewish people are not afraid of. Good and evil, yes. And as you know, as as good and evil is the subject of just about every drama you will see, if you even scratch the surface, you know, from Greek tragedy to Grimm's fairy tales. Um, the subject of good and evil did interest me, and I thought, well, I've never read a Bible. Really sat down and looked at a Bible, and um, there therein comes the learning component. Um, and I got got hooked on um, on the mythology, on the characters, on the credibility of these preposterous stories, um, because you know because the tone was such that it was. And the, the trick was, you know, how to what, what do you do? I don't believe in that character with two horns and blah blah blah. So I started reading Bibles, many many different versions of Bibles. And a lot of interpretive texts. I even, you know, made up some verse that people think was from the Bible when the Jews return to Zion and a comet fills the sky. When the Holy Roman Empire rises, you and I shall die. Um, and it was, you know, finally the book of Revelation had everything I needed. And my research was mirrored in the character of the played by David Warner, the journalist, you know, sussing out. What this means, what that means, the Holy Roman Empire is the, you know, the common market and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, um, and then I hit upon the three sixes. And it was in the book of Revelation. Finally, Revelation had everything I wanted. It was about the apocalypse. It was about the end of the world. It was about the final confrontation between Christ and the Antichrist, the good and the evil into which humanity would fall, mm -hmm. basically, a pit of fire. Um, so, and then I saw the three sixes. That he hath understanding, reckon the number of the beast, the beast being the Antichrist. I had already, I had already realized I was going to write about the son of the devil, the Antichrist, because, uh, one of the interpretive texts interpreted the sea of, uh, that he would rise, the beast would rise from the eternal sea, which was interpreted as the roiling sea of revolution. Political turmoil. So, huh. The devil's child comes to a political family. How? Why? In framing the battle between good and evil, I looked at, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. There's the battle going on inside of one person, which is what God and the devil is about anyway, the battle inside of us all. And um, I just got the idea, and I don't really know how, to put the heart of darkness in the package of an innocent child. And that's what made the damn thing work, finally, is that it was all about an innocent villain. And those people who followed and did the sequels, I'm not interested ever in doing sequels of anything I do. 
Um, I'm, I, I mean, I've, I've avoided the thing that makes people rich, and that is branding themselves. Um, I did only one horror movie, and uh, well, I did another one, which was not so originally good. But at any rate, then the three sixes, which I I turned into two things. I turned it into a birthmark and a calendar date. Uh, uh, when when the Antichrist was born, it was in the movie. It was June six 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 at six a.m. We released the movie in 1976, June 6th. So the three sixes, the three sixes were, were, were playing a big part of it. The movie was originally called Birthmark. Uh, and our first shoot was in a maternity ward. It was where Gregory Peck saw Damien for the first time and switched babies. Um, and it was an actual maternity ward. And they had signs, people, please, if you can, don't make noise. When the when the buzzer goes off, because we are filming birthmark <laughs> in a maternity ward, the women who were having babies there started wanting out of the hospital. You know, the word birthmark was all over the place. And in explaining, an assistant cameraman explaining to the one of the women, why is it called birthmark? Well, because these three sixes. Well, what are the three sixes? And the guy said, the three sixes are an omen. And that's where the damn title came from. An assistant cameraman said, and everybody heard it. Ah, let's put up signs. We are shooting the omen. Um, so that's how all that. And of course, not two weeks ago, um, I went to, I, I rehabilitate wild animals and I went to a, a pet store to get some rabbit food and they were having an argument with the cash register. The woman's, the woman's charge she had already signed before she saw was, Sixty-six dollars and six cents. She did not want a receipt that had three sixes. <laughs> so I, in my mask, in my gray hair, said, "Excuse me, I can settle this for you." I wanted to assure her it was no big deal that I actually had written that damn thing and popularized the three sixes, so she needn't worry about blah blah blah. They look at me and say, "Oh, you wrote the other one, right?" <laughs> yes, I did. Uh-huh. The guy captured said, and I guess you wrote the Bible too, huh? <laughs> and then, okay. Can you direct me to the, to the bunny food, please? They thought I was some old crackpot. And, and, you know, it was, it was really fun and funny. But, you know, those sixes are on people's biceps and on walls, and Ronald Reagan had to change his address. And I take a very secret pleasure in knowing that I put that nonsense out there. <laughs> that is your indelible contribution to popular American culture, yeah. <laughs> for it sure. Is, it is. It is. <laughs> well, I, I think you've contributed quite a bit more, but that's 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 my opinion, you know. And, uh, but the omen certainly was, you know, something that, um, you know, it was it was it has definitely be become more than. Uh, just some little horror film that they intended, obviously. Now, I'm sure you were uh, offered the chance to write the sequels, even though you said you did not. I, I was uh, assuming that you were. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I did. I mean, I couldn't. I, the bar was really high on that. And I knew I would be doing nothing but creating something out of Hamburger Helper. You know, and I did not want to be the instrument of the decline. 
of that movie. I let other people do that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think the second one is uh, it has some moments, uh, but after that, it's uh, the less said the better, I believe. <laughs> I, think, I couldn't even get through. I couldn't even get through the second. <clears throat> and uh, Dick Donner said I should when they did a remake of it with my exact script. Finally, it was the fourth or fifth time around with Liev Schreiber, and it was the same script, same script, and it was a piece of junk. So, I mean, Richard Donner had so much to do with, and of course, Gregory Peck. Originally, Charles Bronson was supposed to do that role, and uh, that would have been a very different movie. With Gregory Peck straight-facing his way through this story, I knew I had something biblical. From the eternal sea, he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother, till man exists no more. Book of Revelations predicted it all. Well, I'm not here to listen to a sermon. It is by means of a human personality entirely in his possession that Satan will wage his last formidable offense. You said that my Go wife to was... the town of Megiddo in the old city of Jezreel. There see the old man Buggenhagen. He alone can describe how the child must die. Look here. He who will not be saved by the lamb will be torn by the beast. Will you stop? You could always take it seriously based on the reverse, based on his shot. Whatever was thrown at him, he was Gregory Peck, stonewalling terror. So, you know, it, it was one of those rare... I've written a lot of movies. I've never had a script better. I've never had a movie be better than a script except The Omen. I've had a lot go the other way. Um, but this, this was a movie that exceeded what I wrote. Yes, it it really is uh, quite an accomplishment, and 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 Gregory Peck does do a lot in selling it. Uh, I think that he he's um, uh, he he was such a great actor, and and that does make make the difference, as you say. And I and you did answer a question I was going to ask was how much involvement you had in the um, the the remake. Uh, but I guess before I get to that, I, I will ask if you were there, uh, how present you were for the shooting. Uh, I know you indicated you were there for some of it, of the original, but uh, were, were you there for a lot of it or just a little bit of it? Or I was not really a party to because I I didn't have any credentials. I was I was you know like I was really young and didn't know much, and I think. The grown-ups wanted to, as they should, take charge without having to schlep me along. I was busy anyway. I was writing uh, every hour on other projects. But I went just once. The first time I went, um, I saw the beheading scene um, where the glass sliced the guy's head. Now, this is at a time when, um, you know, there was no CGI. Everything had to be done the way you saw it. If you remember the little priest, there was a lightning bolt that struck a church steeple and went through that little priest, just poured him. What that was is a piece of hollow balsa wood on a fishing line. And it fell from the top and hit the ground behind him, and he froze. I mean, the, the effect cost 50 cents. It, and, and it was, you know, that's the way that we, the way we did movies in the old days uh, before CGI. Um but when I saw the head come off and the saw the dailies, I says to myself, I think people make lots of money writing novelizations. 
<laughs> so I went and I wrote, it had been done in fairly rarely, Eric Siegel had done it with Love Story, but I ran home, wrote a book, and the book is, you know, translated into every language and still picking up steam and they're doing a leather bound version of it now. It's not a good book. <laughs> I didn't know how to write a book, but it was, you know, basically dragged by the coattails of that movie. So millions of copies. But um, I went back. I could not stay away from that movie set. <clears throat> I kept going back to London. It was so much fun. And, of course, I learned about um, that flirtations with uh, with pretty girls are absolutely part of what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I got hooked on making movies. Oh, yeah. That, uh, I, I can imagine that that would have been an interesting set to, to, uh, to be uh, a part of. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Yeah, cause, uh, and there's so, so many great actors in the film. I mean, Lee Remick you have, obviously, and uh, uh, David Warner, as you mentioned, who uh, has the uh, – the uh, tragic beheading <laughs> and so many others, you know. Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, they, um, it, it, it is quite, an, and I'm a huge Richard Donner fan as well. He, he really uh, just, um, terrific, terrific director and brings a lot to uh, the plate and anything that he does. I think I've often said that this new crop of uh, superhero films, that uh, the reason, one of the reasons why I don't think that I, connect to them as well as I did to what Richard Donner did is because of the humanity that he brought to uh, Superman the movie, for instance, has this level of humanity that's just missing in these Marvel films, and I, I don't mean to denigrate, I know a lot of people are huge fans of them, but uh, they just to me seem cold and calculated, and there's not a lot of, uh, uh, just soulless uh, and very predictable and rote and uh, I, a lot of people say, well, you just don't like Marvel film, uh, you don't like superhero films. And I say, well, that's not, that's not really the case because I love Superman the movie. I think it's it's a great film, and there, but there's genuine emotion there that I think is missing. So he, I think, uh, you know, you can see that in the Omen as well. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, you can't, I can't say enough good things about Richard Donner. He was wonderful. When you talk about the humanity, he saved that movie from being a quote horror movie. Um, by insisting that everything be logical, everything be something that real people could experience in everyday life. It's just a critical mass of all of these accidental killings that really begin to add up in the minds of the characters. But for instance, the scene in the graveyard, the hounds from hell that attacked David Warner and, and Gregory Peck, um, the way I wrote it, there were these creatures, cloaked creatures with goat's hooves uh, that left goat's imprints. And he said, no, 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 no. You, can't. you know, this thing, will, this thing has to, we can believe this movie so long as we respect the audience. Tell them a story that they could find them. Here was this nice guy who created an original kind of sin by passing off another child to his wife. He was a good guy doing something generous, but it was dishonest. So even though you liked him, you loved him, you knew he had it coming. Because that was a pretty big lie to pull off and try to sustain. So he was, so everything in it was, was, was very moral, very actual. And when I say very moral, it was about the violation of, of you know, 
morality human crossing the line and him falling into the hands of something uh, that was absolutely beyond anyone's reason. But um, Dick is a lovely man. When I first saw the movie, I hated it. He screened it for me, and I didn't know that there's things like color correction. I had no idea. I didn't know what music was do for Jerry Goldsmith. Like the grave scene was like in broad daylight. And I just said, Dick, I'm sorry. I think it sucks. And he said, you're a very sick boy. Here's what I want you to do. Get an overnight bag. Come stay in my guest house while I finish this movie until you are buying me champagne and sending me flowers. You've got to get over this shit. Quit saying this. It's a fantastic movie. We're for real. Dick attended the remake of my script and the Omen 666, as it's called. Dick said, take your name off it. It's a pile. And I said, hey, rich man, I'm keeping my name off it. <laughs> I agree that it's a pile, but it's my pile. That's true. That's true. Yes, it's uh well I I was curious about how much of that was uh was your contribution but it just sounds you've answered that question already it just sounds like they took they dusted off the old script and just added a few uh, flourishes I guess you should, should would be the best way to put it and well Hollywood being Hollywood I think they thought I was dead or something because someone else's name was on it <clears throat> I won't say his name he's in the business still doing very well but about Eleven pages had changes on them, not big changes. There were cell phones. The scooter was different. It wasn't a tricycle. It was, you know, they had something in the being. But they tried to knock my name off it, which didn't work at all. Um, so the whole thing was kind of a counterfeit effort. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. I, I had a feeling. I, I, I had never gotten any confirmation about that, but I I, cause I know the original is just, you know, it has – it's just a much better film, <laughs> and and to have your name on it, I thought I bet they just dusted off his old script and <laughs> and gave him credit. <laughs> so so now I know. Okay, well that's great. Yeah. So uh, so ten years passed and you had some projects in the interim, but uh, the next one we'll talk about is Lucas, uh, because I don't want to take too much of your time. So we'll uh, maybe some other time we can talk about some of the other projects but uh, in the interest of time we'll just jump ahead 10 years to Lucas which is uh, a much loved film for people who grew up in the 80s as well so I thought I'd get you to talk a little bit about uh, the genesis of that and where that came from And well it is my favorite movie that I've done <clears throat> and I've done, done a bunch more in summer you know it's, 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 I cover the grayscale of uh, zero to like the Omen, which is you know up up there in the upper 90s, but um, Lucas was very autobiographical. I was um, that kid um, who was a geek and didn't know it. That's that's what Corey Haim and I decided is that Lucas would not know that he's a geek <laughs> and he could say anything with complete conviction. Um, it was a trip. It was, I even filmed it in the high school where it happened, went back to Chicago where some of it happened. There is a scene where he, he wants to be one of the football guys, so he goes out for the team. Well, I wanted to be, I didn't, I, I couldn't play football. I was really a run. But I became the water, bo water boy. That's the guy who brings out towels. 
during the timeouts and all that shit. And I was uh, resoundingly bullied. Uh, I would bring out wet towels and they would throw the towels at me when they went back up. <laughs> There's a scene, if anybody wants to watch Lucas who hasn't seen it, where they've got him in a uh, in the locker room and they apply some of this muscle ointment in the tenderest place. Mm-hmm. That happened to me. Oh. <laughs> um, but at any rate, it was a great experience. Directing all those kids was amazing. You know, there was Winona Ryder, there was Charlie Sheen. Charlie, by the way, as a rap gift, gave me a picture of myself, which echoed the picture in the omen of the mirror that had a slash going through David Warner's throat, which was presaging as losing his head. Charlie gave me a picture of me with a slash. (laughs) Hi, you must be Lucas. Yeah. I've heard a lot about you. Really? Yeah. You look terrific. Thank you. It's a big night. Right. I'll get Margaret for you. I'm right here, Mom. Oh, here she is. See you later. Bye-bye. Hi. Wow, look at you. You look great. You too. You rented a tux? Yeah, I rented it. I bought the tie. I get to keep it. And I bought the shoes. You went through so much trouble. No, it's no problem. I'll pay you back if it costs a lot. No, it's fine. So, you ready to go? I don't think we can go, Lucas. Why not? Cappy and Elise broke up today. But aren't they here? Well, Cappy's here. But he's very depressed. Directing the kids was the best experience I had as a director. I've only directed, like, four movies. And... Um, this was very small, very controlled, and it was it was a family. I had my own kids up there, and we all were in the same hotel. Um, but I realized that the interaction between an actor and a, and a director was so pure that if Corey did a scene, I could say to him, even if it was all off, I could say, don't change a thing, but just listen to me. And I wasn't addressing the way he said the lines or the way he moved his body or what it, I just said, the camera reads your mind. And I do believe it does because I said so. They believed it and it did. I would say, here's what I want you to know about this kid, this moment. Now go back out and do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It was, it was kind of magical. Um, most of them remained friends of mine, and I'm still in touch with them. And, of course, we lost Corey, saw it coming. Um, and Charlie has had his spin-outs, but he's back and intact. Um, Carrie Green gave it up, tried to get back into the business, didn't really work after she went to college. And Winona, of course, has had a career. Courtney Thorne-Smith has had a career. Um, but all I can say about Lucas is it was, um, when I look at it, I see it's pure and I laugh, I laugh at the funny lines and I tear up. Um, one thing interesting about Lucas is that it finished with Lucas gets into a football game in the end. He's thrown the ball. looks like he's going to be a hero, but instead he gets the crap knocked out of him and winds up in a hospital. 
with the girl he loved and couldn't return his love because she loved the football hero. Um, and, you know, the lines where he says they talk about locusts coming out every 17 years. Gee, I wonder where we'll be. I'll be 33. And he says, I'll be 31 and a half. I wonder if we'll still know each other. And she says, I don't know. And he says, I hope so. Camera pulls back. And that's the end of the movie. And the first test audience to, to teenage kids, they were outraged at that ending. They were, we thought they were going to riot. In the, and they were so angry that this was the end of the movie. So I was talking to Larry Gordon, who was the head of the studio, and he came up with the ending of Lucas opening the locker door, and there's a letter jacket. There's a jacket, and the kids start applauding. And it really made the ending. And um, without, I mean, the movie is just a little gem, and it needed, needed that uplifting ending um, to make it, in my mind, it's as close to a perfect movie as I'll ever make, for sure. Um, so I'm glad it resonates with you and with sensitive people who appreciate movie making like you. Well, thanks. Yeah, it, it really does. And I know there are a lot of other fans as well. I um, uh, I know that it was out on Blu-ray for a brief time and has now gone out of print. And it's fetching very high prices uh, in the places where people are still buying physical media. So uh, there is obviously a demand for it and it is fondly remembered by a certain segment of the population uh, the of the uh, the real film lovers we shall say so <laughs> but yeah these are uh, so anyway I, I don't want to take too much more of your time because you've been so generous to talk about these things but uh, uh, I always like to give my subjects an, inter an an opportunity to talk about anything they've got coming up in case they are working on something they want to talk about and if not that's fine as well but I like to give you the opportunity Thank you. I'm working on a couple of things. Um, had uh, something just about to be made when everything shut down here, and it's the kind of story that actually can be animated, and I'm doing that with it. So I think that's probably going to work, and um, I'm still busy. Uh, nothing to nothing really to to specifically talk about that I expect to have something in production in a fairly short period of time. Oh.